This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Uh, we'll see the Minnesota Wild face off against the Washington Capitals later on this evening. Uh, one of a number of games on the board around the NHL today, or tonight rather. Uh, yesterday, some business getting done. And the question that at least I wonder about, I think many as well, uh, did Bill Guerin just sign the next great value contract in the NHL, wrapping up Matthew Boldy for seven years at $7 million a copy? That'll be our first question for the general manager of the Minnesota Wild, Bill Guerin. Bill, thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing fine, buddy. How are you? Uh, I'm good. You know, um, some deals we look at and we say, okay, well, maybe eventually this one will look good. I'll be honest with you, and I'm, I'm not in the minority here either. This seemed to be consensus. Uh, the minute the, the, the figures were released on, on the Matthew Boldy deal, you know, everybody kind of looked at this and said, this is a great deal for the Minnesota Wild. Like, certainly $49 million is great to give somebody, but just from a team <laughs> point of view, I mean, this one really looks like a, looks like a home run for you guys. Can, can you describe the, the process of, of getting there with Boldy? Yeah, you know what? I mean, I, I think you're right. I think, you know what, this will be a, a, a good deal for both of us. I mean, you know, I, I think the most important thing is that it, it's fair. I, I, I don't think either side can, you know, uh, you know, just go on and say, oh, we won that deal. No, I think it's just a really fair deal. I think it's, you know, fair market value for Matt. And, um, we're, the process was, was great. I mean, it only took about five days and, um, you know, Matt's agent, Brian Bartlett's a, a, a phenomenal guy to deal with. And, and uh, you know, we, we just spent a lot of time on it and, and kind of just get right to the point. And, um, you know, the, the relationship's been good with, with the Wild and, and Matt Boldy. And um, it, it's like I said, I think it really just works out for both. And we're thrilled to have them on a long term contract. Mm hmm. You know, one of the things I think that we wondered about uh, with Boldy, because he clicked so well with Kevin Fiala, we said, okay, Fiala's now in Los Angeles. What is this going to mean for Boldy? And, I mean, that was answered real quickly. Like, I I know I I gush a lot about Matt Boldy, but I think this guy's just going to be a superstar uh, in in the NHL. Did you have any concerns that, you know, without Fiala, we might see a dip in production or underlying numbers or anything at all like that? Well, I mean, of course there could have been, a, you know, there could be a dip in, in numbers just because, you know, Kevin's Kevin's an excellent player. Like, he's a, he's a, a point producer. So, naturally, that, that could have an effect on, on Matt. But, you know, the way we the way we see Matt is that he he's always making players around him better um, as well. He, Matt is a playmaker. Um, you know, when you watch him play and the puck gets on a stick, it's, it's you know, he's looking for people. He's always just trying to, you know, give guys a backdoor tap in or, or just, you know, a, a, a one-timer in the slot. He's just constantly looking for guys. So uh, we, we just believe that Matt will be a point producer as well. Uh, excellent player. Um, real good contract. You know, the, 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 the one thing that I think a lot of us wonder about, and you're obviously closer to it and know the player a lot better than we do, do you have any idea what this guy's ceiling could be? Like, we've only seen a couple of seasons here of Matt Boldy, but do you have any idea what his ceiling could be? You've seen a lot of players played with a lot of guys. What are we looking at here with Boldy? Yeah, I think Matt's just going to keep getting better and better. I, I really do. I mean, he's only 21 years old. He's got a big frame that he hasn't even come close to filling out yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, hey, look, he, if 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 
if he keeps going the way he's going, I can't see why he's not, you know, an 80, 90 point guy at some point. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, he, like I said, he just, he's consistently making plays out there. Uh, he's excellent on the power play. Um, you know, and I, I, who knows what the ceiling can be, but I, I really do think he can at least get into the, you know, the 80 point, uh, range. You know, I'm always curious uh, how a player reacts when he gets his first, you know, massive deal. I can recall when when Doug McLean used to work with us here, I was having a conversation with Doug about signing Rick Nash to that first whopper coming out of his entry-level deal, and he said they were, they were flying back to Columbus, him and, and Nash and Joe Resnick, and he said Rick Nash turned to him and said, Geez, Doug, thanks a lot. That's a that's a lot of money. And Doug's like, yeah, that is a lot of Mr. McConnell's money there for sure. Um, what was yeah. Boldy's reaction when, when all was said and done? You know what? I spoke to him on the phone, uh, you know, that night, and um, you could you could you could hear the joy in, in his voice. Um, just just a lot of excitement. Um, and you know, he, yeah, he, he should be. That is a lot of money for a young kid, and. You know, you just want him to be responsible with it and not, you know, don't do some of the stupid things that I did. Um, you know, it, it just just be just be responsible with the money and you know what? Hey, he's he's earned it, and um, this is what we do now. We invest in our young players, and um, you know he, yeah. he's going to be worth every penny. When when you first uh, rang the bell uh, with your first biggie, what was the what was the most frivolous thing that you bought, Bill? Was it the the cliched sports car or was it something else? Oh my God! <laughs> Do we have to go there? <laughs> no. Uh, no, yeah, I had a I, I, I bought a I bought a I bought a car and a couple motorcycles, and some stupid stuff like that. And I, I I wish I could. Uh, I wish I was just. A, I, I wish I was a little smarter at times, but um, you know, my dad was my dad was my uh, financial advisor. He was a, a UBS guy, so he was always on me for my spending, and I, I thank God for that. So, right, um, I learned I learned how to save as well. That's excellent. Um, I, I want to ask you about you know this team approaching t- trade deadline as well. One of the one of the things that I think people. Like just to be blunt, I think respect about your team is, despite the fact that we know what's happening with your salary cap situation, this is a team that's going for it. Like a lot of teams would say, "Hey, you know, we're in salary cap jail here. You know, we're going to punt this for a couple of years and you know retool this thing and, and come back when when we're out of jail." Um, but you're not doing that, and you're going for it. Uh, I'm curious: Are you prepared? To let you know players you know, walk away um, and, and expire contracts, if it means you got a real shot here at uh, doing some damage in the playoffs and, and going for the cup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what? Uh, I, I just the one thing that I, I, I always think about is you know don't you don't want to make your team weaker. You know, and, and you know our players have played so hard. Um, they've done a great job. Nobody ever brings up the, you know, the, the empty cap hits or anything. Nobody cares. And we just keep plugging along and, you know, it's business as usual. And, um, you know, players, players are focused. So yeah, I I mean, I, I think we have a good team. Um, you know, we, we want to get in the playoffs and and try to make some noise. And, um, so the one thing I, I, I won't do is, is, is make our team weaker. So if we have to hold on to guys that are UFAs and, uh, deal with it all in the summertime, then that's what we'll do. 
How, how active is it out there right now? Like we're always sort of curious, you know, the scouting meetings are, are done here. Everyone has their, their updates and managers are, you know, charting their course in advance of trade deadline. How, how, how are the phone lines right now, Bill? Uh, they're pretty quiet. Um, you know, like you said, you, you know, teams are having their mid-season meetings. They're kind of getting their, their houses in order. And, I mean, that's what we're doing right now. I'm down in Fort Lauderdale, and we're having our, our mid-season meetings with amateur and pro scouts. And, um, you know, so after, we're, we're, we're going to be pretty clear on, on, you know, I guess what we want to do. And uh, I would assume that a lot of the other teams are, are doing the same thing. So, but as for, as for right now, it's pretty quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan Reeves, uh, one of the biggest personalities in the sport. Um, I think everybody knows, like, 82 games is a long time. Like, that's a, like, hockey is a really, really long season. It's a grinding season. Um, one of the things that Reeves, and we know this from all of his stops, brings along with is he makes it fun to come to the rink. And you need that in late January and early February when you're, you're grinding through a season. What has Ryan Reeves meant to the Minnesota Wild so far since he, since he got there? Revo has been unbelievable. He has been absolutely fantastic for us. I mean, you know what? Um, you know, hey, look, everybody knows what he can do out on the ice, uh, the role that he plays. Um, and he, he just brings good energy to the rink every day. And he is fun. He's, fun. He's a fun guy to be around. The guys love him. Um, and you need that. I, I think you're so right. When you get into the dog days, January, February, it, you know, it, it, it can get to be a grind. It's a long season. So to have a guy that comes in every single day with that type of attitude, uh, it, it's infectious and it rubs off on everybody. And yeah, he's been, he's been just great. How many of your players, uh, and I'm guessing someone like Jacob Middleton might not be one of them, but how many of your players have, you know, come to you and said, maybe not exactly using these words, but thanks for the security blanket, GM Bill Guerin. <laughs> yeah, we got a couple of guys that can handle themselves, um, but you know what, Revo, Revo definitely. Uh, knowing the guys, knowing that Revo is behind them, yeah, everybody grows an inch or two. And um, I think that's pretty important too. He, he gives a lot of guys confidence out there and makes them feel uh, makes them feel pretty good. Like that—that's the thing about this team. It's—I mean—it's a highly skilled team. And you know, we just had a conversation about Matthew Boldy, and we can't talk about Minnesota without mentioning Kaprizov and Zuccarello and Erickson Eck, uh, etc. But it's also a team that can play a physical game. Whether it's—you know—we just mentioned uh, Jacob Middleton a second ago, or Ryan Hartman, or Marcus Foligno, and Jordan Greenaway, etc. Who do you like? How how do you describe your team? Like when someone asks you. You know, Bill, how would you describe your squad? What do you say? Yeah, I, I think we can play it any way you want. Um, you know, we we have a certain identity, and it's you know what we're 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 big and heavy. That's the way we want to play. But we do have a uh, a high level of skill. Um, but I think the I think the most important thing to me is our competitive nature, our the way we compete, and that's not just like with physicality or anything like that. It's mm-hmm. it's loose pucks. It's you know fifty fifty puck battles. It's uh, getting to the net. It, you know all all the aspects of the game we want to have high compete, and and that's really important. I, I think we have that, and um, you know, and and I I just want to be a hard team to play against. Mm-hmm. 
Is there, um, uh, we'll, we'll end on this one, let you get on with your day, Bill. Um, is there a team that you look at and say, okay, that's going to be our measuring stick? Like Saturday on Hockey Night in Canada, the Maple Leafs faced off against the Boston Bruins. Like that is a measuring stick team for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, is, there, is there a measuring stick team for the Minnesota Wild? I, I know whenever you guys play Vegas, those are great games. Um, but is, is there a team out there that you say, this is who we measure ourselves against? Oh my gosh, I, I think there's so many right now, but um, you know, you always look at the top teams in the league, and and I really think that uh, um, you know Boston is the measuring stick right now. Then you go to Colorado. Colorado is 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 probably the next one. Um, obviously, they're the the reigning champs, and and they have just incredibly talented guys that, that all play with great pace. Um, so that that's definitely a measuring stick for us in the West, and. You know, I, I, I look at Calgary as well because I think they're built similarly to us. And, and I know Brad and the way he likes to see the game played. And him and I have some, some uh, you know, shared philosophies and, and, and feelings of, of uh, how the game should be played. And uh, so whenever we get up, go up against Calgary, they're good games too. Fun to watch. Uh, so is your squad. Congratulations on the Boldy deal. Uh, sitting third right now in your division. Uh, eyes higher. Uh, and eyes for the Stanley Cup playoffs as well. Uh, good luck the rest of the way. I'm sure we'll we'll check back a couple of different times. Thanks, as always, for doing this, Bill. Looking forward to the next time. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. There he is, Bill Guerin, the uh, general manager of the Minnesota Wild, yesterday putting uh, pen to paper um, and getting a signature on the line that is dotted. Matthew Boldy is a seven-year contract, $49 million, uh, $7 million per. For someone, you know, y- you might look at Matt Boldy right now and say, like, he had a boffo season last year. It was great, playing on a line with Kevin Fiala, uh, outstanding. Um, and you look at this season, you might say to yourself, 29 points in, in 42 games. You, you know, when you look at the underlying numbers, and I think you always have to look when you come into Matthew Boldy with... I think you have to look at things like opportunities and chances created. Um, He's right up there, and that worm is going to turn sooner or later. And there have been some people have made comparisons to, you know, is he the next, and I I can't believe I'm going to say this, but it's out there, you know, is he the next David Pasternak? Like, is he that type of player where it's high production, it's a lot of goals, and you say to yourself, how did Minnesota get this guy at $7 million. Like, you can make the argument that right now, uh, Matt Boldy uh, is earning that $7 million. So let alone what this is going to look like after, you know, two or three years, kind of like how you look at the Tage Thompson extension, which kicks in next year. He's already earning next year's money this year when he's on a contract that pays just under $2 million per season. I think we're going to be there with Matthew Boldy probably sooner than later. Uh, He is that good. Uh, of a player. I know he plays in a market that doesn't tend to get a lot of headlines. That's why I really like having Bill on uh, or anyone from Minnesota because I really do think it's a team that more people should pay attention to um, outside of uh, uh, outside of Minnesota. Um, and there's exciting players and young players, and it's a really good team. And I think Garen is right on the money about this one. Like, they're kind of an old-school combination of skill and toughness and the the one team that for me nailed that more and this is like in the history of hockey that nailed that more than anybody else were the islanders and that dynasty who could play any single way you wanted there was no one no team better equipped to play any style of game 
than the Islanders. And I think that was part of the beauty of that squad as well, in that they could almost say, you know what, you decide which style of play we're going to play this game. It could be a 6-5 to five game wide open, could be a 2-1 to one button down affair, it could be a rough and tumble game that takes three, three and a half hours. We're fine with all of it. We'll let you decide what style we're going to play, and then we're going to beat you at it. To me, that was part of the brilliance of the New York Islanders. And that's why, you know, I really want teams like the Minnesota Wild to succeed. Because, as we know in this team, everybody tries to copy each other when you're successful. Right? The Anaheim, the Carolina Hurricanes win the Stanley Cup coming out of the lockout. It's all about foot speed, foot speed, foot speed. The Anaheim Ducks win the uh, the Stanley Cup and everything's about okay we got to get some some nuclear missiles on the bench it's going to be toughness um etc etc I like teams like the Minnesota Wild that can play a whole bunch of different ways and have enough bodies to do so anyway thanks to the Minnesota Wild for making Bill Guerin available as they always do and thanks to Bill for stopping by uh coming up in hour two we are going to return to the random player of the day uh, if you want to get your random player of the day nominated, JM Show at sportsnet.ca is the email. Uh, we took a pause on it yesterday, mainly because we had the Rutherford press conference. We tried to do this thing at the top of hour two. Uh, yesterday, Rutherford started right as hour two of this program uh, began. So we defaulted the gym, and he pretty much carried the hour. It was a uh, press conference for the ages. So we're back talking about the random player of the day. It's an interesting one. It's a historical one. And it's one that, that leads us to a question. And that is, was this player the best third-line center of all time? We'll let you know who that is when we return. Also in hour two, Brian Lawton, who's been around the game in a number of capacities as a player. First overall draft pick as well. Uh, a general manager as well, now an analyst with the NHL Network. We'll talk to lots uh, and get his sort of time and temp from what's going on around the NHL. And Dave Randorf, Tampa Bay Lightning play-by-play voice. The Bolts ending Seattle, Seattle's miracle January yesterday, snapping their streak. And Tampa now have won four games in a row. Don't look now, but Tampa's kind of reminding everybody that they're really, really good. Randorf, Lawton, and the random player next on The Merrick Show. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Okay, welcome to Hour 2. Brian Lawton's going to be joining us here in uh, 5, 6, 7, 8, however long it takes. Minutes time here before we uh, finish off the random player of the day. Also, Dave Randorf at the bottom of the hour. We'll talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning who ended the great story that was the Seattle Kraken. We'll see if they can pick it up tonight against the Edmonton Oilers. Meanwhile, Matt Marchese, our producer and uh, occasional, uh, if not frequent, fill-in host here on the program, see Thursday and Friday this week. Uh, What do we have for the random player of the day? When I saw this one, I thought this was right up your alley because I, like you, um, have heard that this player was one of, if not the best third-line centers because of the great teams that he played on. And that is... Uh, submitted by Phil Bublitz, uh, Ralph Backstrom. Yep. So when the new school kids hear the name Backstrom, they think of Nicholas Backstrom of the Washington Capitals, uh, someone who enjoys a little older vintage. Uh, well, think of Ralph Backstrom. And Maddie's right. He's widely considered uh, the best third-line center in the history of the game. He won six Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens. And because of that roster headlined by one of my favorite players ever, Jean Beliveau, uh, it's tough to get up higher in the roster when you have so many elite players ahead of you. Um, both of his parents were born in Sweden. 
Um, Ralph Baxter was born in Kirkland Lake after the family went from Sweden to Finland, then to Canada. Um, as I mentioned, six-time Stanley Cup champion with the Montreal Canadiens. Um, Little-known trivia fact here, Matt. You like this one? Remember uh, Buffalo Sabres netminder Darren Poopa? Remember yes, that guy? Sir. Yep. It's Ralph Backstrom's cousin. Ralph Backstrom's oh. cousin. So Ralph also won a Memorial Cup in fifty-eight, fifty-nine with the Hull Ottawa Canadians. Uh, he won a Calder Trophy the very next year with the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, steady two-way player. He would have been, if they had the Selkie Trophy back then, probably a numerous-time winner of the Selkie Trophy. And his name will always be attached to one of the greatest and smartest trades ever made by the Montreal Canadiens. So their general manager, Sam Pollock, and in the uh, 1971 draft, Montreal owned their own pick, and they also owned Oakland's number one pick in the Ernie Hickey deal. Um, Oakland wanted to get some more players. Sam Pollock realized the value of having high draft picks and investing in the future and using the draft. Um, and he wanted Guy Lafleur in that one. And Oakland was a pretty bad team uh, all season long, although the Los Angeles Kings really had an awful season as well. And this was the era where if you finished last, you got the first overall pick. And L.A. was really threatening to be the worst team in the league. Sam Pollock went to work sent Ralph Backstrom to the Los Angeles Kings for Gord Laboissiere and Ray Fortin. Uh, and right away, it helped pick up the Los Angeles Kings. The Oakland Seals ended up finishing last. And the Montreal Canadiens ended up getting Guy Lafleur, who they went on to win numerous Stanley Cups uh, with in the 1970s. Uh, Backstrom ended up in the WHA, the World Hockey Association, as part of the initial raid of that league to the NHL. I don't think Backstrom wanted to leave the NHL, but the Chicago Cougars offered him a five-year, I think it was a five-year deal at $150,000 per season, which at that time was insane money, and he wasn't getting that from anyone in the NHL. So he splits, um, ended up coaching, we think, at the University of Denver, went to the IHL's Roadrunners as well. One of the things that I always go out of my way to mention is I was always a big fan of Roller Hockey International, the RHI. I love the old Roller Hockey League. As a matter of fact... Behind, if you're watching on TV, it's Toronto Planets from the RHI as I knock over my Cleveland Crusaders button there. And the other thing about RHI, Roller Hockey International, if you're interested in it, and Ralph Baxter was the original commissioner of RHI, there's a wonderful book written by Richard Neal Graham called Wheelers, Dealers, Pucks, and Bucks. Holding it up here if you're watching on 360 or Sportsnet now. That is an excellent accounting of the old RHI. Uh, along with Dennis Murphy and Larry King, Ralph Backstrom helped to start that league as well. Now, he was part of a team, 1961 Montreal Canadiens, that pulled off something remarkable. There has been teams that have done this, most notably and recently the 14-15 Tampa Bay Lightning, in that they led the NHL in goals but didn't have a single player that was a point-per-game player. Backstrom led the team in scoring then 65 points in 66 games. Now, he was part of, and we'll end on this one, and I want to play a clip. He was part of a really famous Summit Series, not the 72 Summit Series I'm thinking of here, but the 1974 Summit Series. This is the WHA players against uh, the Soviets. And... um, he played on a line with Gordie Howe and Mark Howe as well. And in that series, game one, 
uh, at the Colisee, in uh, the fabled Colisee in Quebec, there was a debut of something that revolutionized not just hockey, but all of sports. And I don't think it gets enough attention. I want to play this clip in a second. There was a, uh, uh, there was a, a, a device, called, a computer, called Game Recorder. And this was the first computer ever used in any sports to track real-time stats to present back either to broadcasters or to the teams itself. Let's go back to 1974. This is game one. This is some, some audio here um, of, the, uh, of the commentators talking about the game recorder, which really revolutionized not just hockey, but all of sports. This is the, they're referencing the first computer ever used in any sports, and it was used in the 1974 Summit Series, uh, WHA versus the Soviet Union. Let's have a listen. Notes here from this new game recorder uh, that we have, and it indicates that Serge Bernier has won 99% of the faceoffs that he's been involved in. But to get to some other interesting statistics, J.C. Tremblay has been good on 78% of the passes. He's made nine passes so far, and Pat Stapleton has completed 88% of his checking. Uh, these are statistics that we'll throw at you from time to time to give you an indication of how the individuals are doing. Now, this is a brand-new uh, computer, but it's, unfortunately, it's only uh, programmed to handle one team so far, but eventually the Gamer Recorder will handle others. Uh, the great John Esau on that one of, of CTV. So that was put together by um, a father-son combination of Neil and Brad Penman. Now, Brad Penman had, had played uh, minor hockey with Streetsville, I believe, and his dad, Neil, would, would keep stats just on a piece of paper. Now, Brad was a computer geek, uh, loved it, and they came up with this novel concept that they were able to view. They are looking for a venue for it, and the organizers of the 74 tournament allowed it to happen. The game recorder, keeping real-time stats. So anyone listening to this program or watching this program who's involved in uh, the analytics community uh, can pay a nod and go back to 1974 where the beginning of keeping real-time stats happened and it was a father-son combination of Neil and Brad Penman of Mississauga, Ontario. So there you go, Matt Marchese. That's what I've got on Ralph Backstrom dovetailing into a story about the game recorder. But by the way, that game recorder is at the Hockey Hall of Fame. It was donated years later. That's just super. When you said that to me, I was like, well, hold on a second. Like, you think stats and, and live stats would be something that maybe over the last 30 years we're talking to, but to go back almost 50 years for that is pretty impressive. Like, yeah, it only had Yeah, it only had one team and whatever. But still, when we think of how technology has just advanced from there, the fact that it was around in 1974, yeah. pretty cool. So you know how I stumbled across this one? And I had, I had talked to someone about this maybe 10, 12 years ago, and I had forgotten about it. But in, uh, in, in doing some stuff on, on Ralph Backstrom last night, I woke up this morning, and here's how much of a loser I am, Maddie. I went and watched game one 
of uh, of the 1974 of WHA versus versus Russia. And like within the first couple of minutes, they're talking about the game recorder. I'm like, ooh, this could be good. This could be some uh, some fertile ground. So there you go, your story on the game recorder. Oh, also um, in the WHA when he was when Ralph Baxter was the Chicago Cougars, uh, the team was having a hard time making payroll. Um, and so there was actually a situation where the players ended up buying the team. And Ralph Baxter was one, the late Dave Dryden, and Pat Stapleton uh, as well. Three Chicago Cougars players ended up being, we've heard about, you know, player coaches. They were player owners of the WHA Chicago Cougars. Anyway, there's your story about Ralph Backstrom uh, to nominate your very own random player of the day, JM Show at sportsnet.ca. Story time is now over. And let's get to our good friend Brian Lawton from the NHL Network, former player, former NHL general manager. Uh, so he's covered a lot of ground for a lot of years, and he joins me now on the program. Brian, how are you today? I am good, and a former player of Ralph Backstrom's of the Phoenix Roadrunners in like 1990-91 when Ralph was the head coach. No. He was a great guy. So what yeah. So yeah, so tell me about Backstrom the tell me about Backstrom the coach then as we extend this random player motif for the day. <laughs> uh you know what Ralph was a player's coach long before he, there was really anybody that was that way. He was just such a good guy. He literally was one of the guys I can remember one time mm-hmm. a bunch of the guys in Indianapolis decided we'd uh, send Ralph a note from a very pretty flight attendant he was flirting with to meet him for dinner. To <laughs> 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 which Ralph showed up in the lobby in his finest suit, ready to go to dinner. <laughs> and the whole team was up on the, it was like an embassy suites, and the whole team was on like the third floor staring over at Ralph. He lifted up at us and he said, You effing guys! <laughs> <laughs> he was a beauty, but road pranks. But, but I love, uh, yeah, oh, road yeah. pranks. I love the guy. Yeah, he, he honestly, he was just an absolute That's... gentleman. You know, people people forget back then, coaches were not necessarily gentlemen in the National Hockey League, uh, and you guys have seen many, yes, many of them. Much, uh, much different relationship. Now it's a lot of open door and open communication and, you know, information is free flowing from, uh, from the athlete to the coach, uh, but it never was that day. They would, if you were lucky, talk to you at the beginning of the season, at Christmas, and then at the end of the season, or if you were traded, uh, they would call you into the office. Um, Brian, you've, you've seen and been part of so much in hockey. I, I want to go back to your, before we get a, your, your take on the landscape right now, um, Back in your days with Tampa, one of the skills that managers need to have, and this has been true for a number of years now, is the ability to manage upwards. Um, When you look at the Vancouver Canucks situation right now and the press conference yesterday from Jim Rutherford, um, how much do you look at this and say, that's Jim Rutherford maybe taking bullets for decisions that may even be made at the ownership level? Like when it comes to Vancouver, I've always felt that you know, the ownership sets the agenda and it's up to everybody underneath to uh, to execute it. It's not a matter of, you know, Rutherford, you know, goes to man- uh, ownership and says, this is what I would like to do. How do you read the Vancouver situation? And are there any parallels between your time in Tampa running a hockey team? Well, managing up is always important. Uh, it was super easy for me, to be honest with you. Orrin Coolis, who 
you know, was well known for his work on Two and a Half Men and the Saw movie franchise. Wasn't yep. isn't that much older than me, and him and I had never met before I was hired. Um, but working with him was an absolute delight every day. He was easy to get along, was easy to communicate. There was no BS. I'd tell him exactly where we're at. Uh, he backed me in literally every major decision we ever made, whether it was, you know, drafting a certain player over other players or making a trade. Uh, it was just a delight. And it came uh, super easy for me because of our friendship. Uh, but I really felt it was mm-hmm. super helpful for the franchise um, because you could just talk candidly and you didn't have to try to tell a story that wasn't true about maybe what the state of the franchise was. Jimmy Rutherford, now to bring it forward, it, it's been a, a rougher ride for Jimmy. One thing that Jimmy's known for is, that, well, there's two things. Uh, first of all, he's as honest as the day is long, and I've always enjoyed my relationship with him going back a number of years when uh, Jimmy really could have put the boots to me a couple of times and it just wasn't right and he didn't do it. Whereas a lot of other general managers would have, and I always respected him for that. Mm. Um, You know, and then the the second thing about Jimmy is he's known for being a bit of a gunslinger. And right now it's tough to be a gunslinger in the NHL as a GM. There's just not a lot of trading partners this pandemic has really, you know, things had already slowed down from the past in terms of your ability to make mm-hmm. moves. But with the pandemic and the cap growing a million a year, we all can see on the horizon better days, brighter days, certainly for GMs trying to maybe get out from under the type of situation that Jimmy and the Vancouver Canucks find themselves in right now, which is, you know, some contracts they're unhappy with. Um not good enough to really compete, but not bad enough to be flushed down in the Connor Bedard sweepstakes without at least artificially yeah. helping that along. And maybe we'll see that. Maybe you'll see, you know, Bo Horvat, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent, of course, fired out of there, and or other players. Yep. Uh, but so far, we haven't seen any of that. So we're all kind of waiting to see what direction Jimmy's going to go in. And he's never afraid to come out and put everybody on notice that we're on red alert over here in Vancouver as to what we're going to do. Um, if you were running the Vancouver Canucks now, given like no one's disputing that there are excellent players on the team. Um, I think there's some questions about, you know, whose timeline are they following? And that, and that may be true. Um, what, what do you think the sanest course for Vancouver to take is here, given that, you know, Demko is going to come back eventually. You've got a cornerstone on the blue line in Quinn Hughes. You have an elite centerman in, in Elias Pettersson and a lot of other, you know, really good complimentary players. You have some bad contracts. Of course you do. But if you were charting the future for the Vancouver Canucks, w- which direction would you be looking at, Brian? Uh, I'd be focusing in one area for me because I think you're right, Jeff, when you say, you know, geez, the the players on the roster, there's a lot of known players, players with a history that are predictable, exactly the type of players that coaches like. You know what you're going to get out of them. But for me, the chemistry is off there more than anything. Uh, And you've got some great guys on the team, guys like Luke Shen that are known for their leadership. You know, maybe not high enough up the lineup to affect things as much as you would like. 
Um, but you've got some really good people there. I know Brock Besser very well. Things have not gone well for him. I see JT Miller. He's snapping half the nights. I don't know if he's mad at himself or his teammates. Uh, for me, it, the chemistry just feels off from a distance, and only Jimmy Rutherford has a feel for that. I can only imagine if that is, in fact, you know, one of the top problems, one of the top solutions to try to solve how difficult it is right now because, you know, a lot of the players that, mm. you know, we potentially look at in that bucket are on what I call, you know, they're untradeable players not because the organization wants them so bad, but because no one else will take them for anything that's reasonable. And that is the worst of positions to be in. Um, time will be their biggest, biggest enemy and brother. And I say that because it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some more time to get things straightened. And uh, eventually, as they use that time, some of these contracts are going to start to, they're going to start to fade away, fade off the books. But we're also going to get that infusion in the salary cap where it's going to allow some people that are maybe in this exact position but at a different time to be able to buy themselves out mm. of this trouble. Something we have seen a lot in the salary cap era, but not a lot lately, that's for sure. Um, down the street, meanwhile, um, Seattle. Now their their run just ended. Uh, I mean, this was this was a big January lots was supposed to be the month that totally destroyed the Seattle Kraken. First week, four games. Second week, four games. Third week, right now, four games as well. Next week, they have three. Like we looked at the schedule and said, this is where Seattle falls off the face of the NHL world. Uh, that hasn't happened. Quite the opposite. Now Tampa beat them last night. Tampa's a really good team, obviously. Um, your thoughts on what we've seen from Seattle here? Because, you know, along the way, whether it's, you know, Matt Beniers or some strong play from Tolvanen or Sprong uh, or someone that I've been talking a lot about lately, and that's Vince Dunn. Um, you know, we, we've, we've gotten to know, I think casual fans have gotten to know a whole lot about a whole bunch of new players for them. When you see Seattle right now, what do you think of? And, you know, could they be really active come trade deadline time, given the position they're in and, you know, how close they are maybe to pulling a Vegas Golden Knights 2.0 type playoff performance? Yeah, I mean, when I look at Seattle, the analysis for me is pretty clear. They came into the league with unrealistic expectations on the heels of the great things that the Vegas Golden Knights were able to do, you know, immediately from their very get-go as a franchise. Uh, I just felt like that was a really unfair marker to put on Ron Francis and his group. Last year, they had some tough goaltending, had some injuries at the goaltending position. The D didn't quite perform. Dave Haxtall struggled a bit with the new group, although it wasn't necessarily uh, uh, nearly as deep a group as it is this year. And to me, that's where the flip really came into play. I thought Ron Francis did a really nice job, you know, going out, getting Burkowski. I thought that was a a nice move, getting Bortstrand. I thought that was an under-the-radar move. Benares being there all year long. All of a sudden, Tanif being healthy. Uh, Sprong has been a good pickup for them, as has Toivon, and for that matter. Uh, Yanni Gord's always been a really special player for me, so now we're seeing some of his value. But when I look at it, they look a lot like Vegas did now, except Vegas was able to do that right from the get-go in year one. What do I mean by that? I mean they're just – they don't have 
necessarily those elite superstars. There's no Connor McDavid's or Leon Dreisaitl's or Pedersen's or, or Horvat's or whoever else you want to put on there, but they have a lot of depth. And that really is what Vegas was. Vegas was a team that had, you know, a bunch of second and third liners throughout their lineup. They didn't have that high-end top player, but it didn't matter. Well, now that's how I, I view Seattle. They have some guys that could grow into that, certainly. But uh, they've got more depth at forward. Their goaltending has been better. And their decor has really come together, uh, which – you know, I was a little surprised it wasn't better last year because I felt like Larson, Oleksiak, even Carson Soucy, I felt like these guys were real players. Vince Dunn, I, I probably had a lot of question marks on him coming in, you know, knowing that he'd be leaving St. Louis, a system where he just never really quite got it going for a full year. You felt like he could. Well, now he's there, and he's been just dynamite. He's been one of the really bright stories. So, Lots to unpack there, but uh, when you add it all, Ron Francis, awesome job. Dave Hexall settled this group down, uh, had to be tough. Had a lot of people tell me they thought he'd be the first coach fired this year. Not the case. He's done a great job, and their team, I think, is for real. Everybody's been waiting for Calgary and Edmonton to, you know, rocket by these guys because Seattle's going to drop like a rock. Hasn't happened. Now, let's hope Edmonton doesn't beat up on Seattle tonight. But for the most part, that hasn't happened. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see. And it's the, uh, it is the return of Evander Kane later on this evening. One, one final note on, on Seattle for our listeners as well. Um, Shane Wright uh, has been a hot-button issue all season long. Um, curious your thoughts on, on him. And he's been you know, sent back to the OHL, traded to the Windsor Spitfires. Uh, they won you know, three big games over the weekend, a pair against Saginaw, one against London. Shane Wright, six points in three games. Windsor Spitfires are top in their division, etc. Um, how, how do you feel about how Shane Wright's story has unfolded so far this season? Uh, I think it's been really tough on him. You know, I'm told there's a lot of outside pressures there on him, things that have nothing to do with development. And that's really the main function of what you have to look at. What matters most in his development? I don't think he was going to end up playing much this year. So what if he doesn't get paid this year? Shane Wright's going to be a really good National Hockey League player. So what if, you know, he didn't get picked first where maybe a lot of people thought he would most of the year drops down, Seattle gets him. Ron Francis is going to do it right, and I think he is doing it right. When he sent him back to Team Canada, I felt like, and I didn't ask Ron this, but I should have, I felt like it was uh, almost a certainty that he would be going back to junior after that. Uh, Only Ron knows what Mm -hmm. him and Shane probably talked about before he departed. But Ron's very personable. Uh, He's also very direct. I'd be shocked if he didn't tell him, look, you may come back, you may not. Go there, focus on the tournament, have the best tournament you can, win a gold for Canada, and uh, we'll reassess after that. But I probably would have, if it had been me, I would have given a bit of a heads up that you may not be coming back here. And, oh, by the way, it doesn't mean we don't love you, think your future is incredibly bright. We just want to see you develop and have fun and get the minutes to do that. So I don't think that was an easy decision for the organization, but I commend him on it because I do believe it's yeah. the right one. And, uh, yeah, we looked at that with Steven Stamkos, believe it or not. It just 
you know, unfortunately, when you watch Stammer, you just couldn't come up with any reasons to send them back. We almost did it in Tampa the first year, and not necessarily that we were going to do it, but we I certainly had a lot of discussions with certain coaches that really felt he'd be better suited. Ultimately, that's a GM's call, and I didn't agree. I felt he'd be just fine if we played more minutes, which eventually happened for Stammer. And, you know, he had a good rookie year. It wasn't amazing, but he, he had 23 goals, probably 18 of them in the second half. That's exactly good. what you want to see for a young player. Yeah, that's good. We did, we're not going to see that from Shane Wright, but I think he'll be back next year twice as strong. Yeah. And uh, I think it's going to work out great for him, Jeff. I really do. I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on Shane. Uh, I just think there's more development that yeah. needs to happen there. And it's just fine to happen in junior. Real good player. Uh, let's conclude by talking about the Boston Bruins uh, as we sort of tour around. W- one of the points that I've been coming back to, because, you know, there, sure there's a new head coach and, and David Krejci returns uh, to the lineup last night playing in, in game number 1,000. And Lena Solomark has had a nice season. To me, the, the one thing that I keep pointing to, I'm really curious your thoughts on this one, as to why this Boston Bruins team you know, when we thought this was going to be, you know, last hurrah, shady side of the mountain, they can see the clubhouse, etc. Weren't sure if Bergeron was coming back and all that. The one thing that I keep pointing to as the the main reason why the Boston Bruins now find themselves tops in the NHL when many were writing them off at the beginning of the season, because essentially it's pretty much the same team that we saw last season. I keep coming back to Hampus Lindholm and saying, you know, Jim Montgomery has the ability to have either Charlie McAvoy or Hampus Lindholm on the ice for every single minute of the game, which is a luxury that no other coach enjoys. To me, the big difference in the Boston Bruins, with all due respect to Krejci and Montgomery and Linus Allmark, has been the presence of Hampus Lindholm. Is there something else, or do you agree that that's the reason why we're seeing this huge charge from the Boston Bruins? Uh, If I came up with all the reasons why I think they're significantly better, I'd probably list five. And if I did them in inverse order, <laughs> okay, I'll give you the punchline at the end. Yep. I would say that okay. just a guy like Nick Felino, Nick Felino being healthy, coming alive, having a big impact in the locker room. Pavel Zaka, I thought that was a nice move, solidified things for them, gives them a really what's supposed to be a second line. It's really a first line on any other team. And, of course, Krejci is a huge part of that. Him deciding to come back just plugged a hole that allowed Charlie Coyle to drop down in that third line. Uh, and then Monty. I just think that we, we Jim Montgomery is kind of the forgotten man. I think he's, you know, not looking for any attention. He went through a rough span in his life, had a lot of embarrassment, what happened in Dallas, faced it like a man, always yeah. has been a good coach, got himself back in as assistant, being back as a head coach, not surprised. He's always been a great coach. He's still a great coach. Good for him. But Hampus Lindholm, Jeff, is the number one reason why they are where they're at, in my opinion, not to make you feel good about what you were saying. I just happen to agree with you. It's shocking <laughs> to me. It is shocking to me, Jeff, that he got traded for what he got traded last year for. I just he, He's such a valuable player on any team. Essentially, you're trading for a number two D worst case scenario. That's worst case scenario yep. on every team in the NHL. And to get traded for, I think the, I think they give him a 22nd pick, uh, Vakanainen, 
who has been hurt, to be fair, but he hasn't really played. Uh, just the, the totality of that was a, a massive miss. You can kind of see sometimes how those things happen. They're a dream for every GM. Um, but the market wasn't very strong last year, and you just had an organization that was driving itself in a different direction. And unfortunately, the decision probably had been made before the deadline that no matter what, we're going to take what we can get. The Bruins were the benefactors of that. It has vaulted them forward. It didn't cost them a ton. And uh, they're the class of the league right now. They, they deserve that title. And they have replaced Chara. Uh, they've just been able to keep rolling. I think Donnie Sweeney has done a magnificent job there. But Hampus Lindholm is just that good a player. You see his offense come alive now, something that was kind of dying in Anaheim's system. And uh, he's been just a magnificent story. There have been some wonderful trades uh, in that organization's history, whether it's Esposito, whether it's Neely. And if the Boston Bruins can win the Stanley Cup this season, we're going we're gonna to have to throw the Hampus-Lindholm deal very much uh, into that conversation. Uh, lots, always great catching up with you. Continued success um, with the NHL Network. Always love watching and listening to you. Thanks so much for stopping by. You be well. We'll touch base soon, my friend. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. There he is, Brian Lawton uh, from the NHL Network, analyst covering off a number of different things here, the Vancouver Canucks, the Seattle Kraken, the Boston Bruins, etc., with a little pepper and parsley in your soup, with his time with the Tampa Bay Lightning uh, under Oren Kulis, uh, one of two owners. Uh, we'll hit a break. We'll come back with Dave Randorf talking about the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, he is their uh, play-by-play voice, after all. He was also there with, with Gina Wojcik in, in Vancouver. Might get a thought or two there uh, from Dorf about that. The Lightning win their fourth in a row, and they snap Seattle's win winning streak. Uh, all of this. Oh, and Stamkos is one goal away from 500. Lots to get into with Dave Randorf, play-by-play voice of the Tampa Bay Lightning when the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, welcome back to the program. So the Tampa Bay Lightning yesterday playing Grinch and uh, ending Seattle's winning streak. Boo, that was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed that one, but it all came crashing down. Eight-game winning streak. They're ripping right through January until they meet the modern dynasty. That is the uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Their play-by-play voice is our good friend Dave Randorf. He joins me now. Dave, how are you today, pal? I'm doing great, Jeff. Yes, the uh, the party poopers that are the Lightning went in there and and, uh, <laughs> and took care of business. They kind of quieted the building down. Well, I tell you what, that was my first time Man. getting to Climate Pledge Arena. And, wow, I'm telling you, any hockey fan out there right now who's got road trips, you know, likes to go see different buildings, uh, you need to put that place on your list. It, yeah. it was a fabulous place. Yeah, well, I'm curious your thoughts on it as well because, listen, like Vegas has become a destination. Like if you're going to go around, if you're going to do the, the NHL rink tour, you got to get to Vegas. I haven't been to Seattle. What is Seattle like? What is What is Climate Pledge like for you? It's very, very unique. Um, it's very uh, – the whole building, for those who have – you can remember the Sonics. You know, they used to play at Key Arena, and there was this kind of iconic yeah. – um, I don't know what you would call this, this roof. It was a small building. It was basketball only. So they took that footprint. They kept the roof. I believe they lifted it up, and they dug a big hole and put the whole rink in the hole uh, to simplify the explanation. There is a window, a giant glass window at one end of the rink. I don't know whether it's north, south, east, or west, but it's behind one of the nets, and it's wide open. And 
so yesterday being a one o'clock uh, face-off on Martin Luther King Day, you know, the daylight's kind of streaming in, not to the point of distraction or anything, but it's kind of cool. And so you can see that window, which is at, starts at the back row uh, of seating. That's street level. You know, you can see everybody kind of hanging around there watching the big screen outside the arena, uh, from outside the arena, because mm. the screens are, as everybody is, um, probably knows by now, instead of having the one main jumbo Tron video screen at center ice hanging above the rink, you've got two uh, at either end kind of above each net, and they're kind of pie-shaped with the big, uh, you know, fat end facing the end zones with screens on all three sides. They're crystal clear. It's a very, I don't know who, who came up with that idea, but it's, it's really cool and really kind of opens things up through the middle of the building and allows everybody to, the atmosphere to kind of build uh, in a different visual way, if, if that makes any sense. But uh, anyway, it, it's full, it's packed. Obviously, they're very excited about what's going on there. They just kind of have to maintain now, and it looks like they're going to make the playoffs. I mean, I know there's a long way to go, but, you know, they've had, they've had a few long, significant stretches. Win streaks of eight, win streaks of five, win streaks of six, you know, runs of 12, one and two, uh, you know. And, and so they've packed, uh, packed away a lot of points, and, um, you know, they kind of believe what they're doing now. So they, we may just get a, uh, you know, a, a Seattle Kraken playoff appearance this year. Uh, I don't think it would surprise anybody uh, at all. They, they've, they've, they've long passed – like they're past the the stage where we look at their wins and say, "Oh, look, it's cute. They've put together a four win streak here. That's nice for you know a team that really disappointed last season." Like this is a good hockey team. This is a good hockey team. This is a deep hockey team. Uh, this is a hockey team that's getting you know you might look at them and say they're getting average goaltending, um, but when you see what that blue line is doing and you look what all four lines are doing for the Seattle Kraken, it seems as if they don't need anything more. Um, than average goaltending last night. So how how did Tampa do this? How did Tampa spoil the party? You know, on the road, this team is you know un, uh, just unbelievable. Uh, they come back to Seattle. You know, there's going to be a, a natural you know, sort of letdown. You know, back home finally after the lengthy road trip. What was Tampa's mentality? You know, they've won four in a row now. How did Tampa get this one done in Seattle last yesterday afternoon? Well, they came in with the attitude that they always, almost always bring, and that is it's a business trip. And they, their road record, to be quite honest, <clears throat> coming into their current five-game road trip was average at best. I believe it was 9-9, nine and nine, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they also were coming in off of a couple of wins at home in which the third periods John Cooper was not happy about. In fact, he called him out um, in the media and said uh, this that was unacceptable. There was a, it was a real sloppy effort in Winnipeg, and then they brought that home, and third periods were kind of... You know what, you know what happened in those third periods? On a couple of occasions, they started trying to force feed Stamkos for his 500th goal, and they got away from who they are <laughs> and their structure. And it's true; it's totally true. So they got away from what they were really doing. So they have they've um, gotten rid of all that, and they've gone on the road in St. Louis. They went in there, took care of business, and once the Lightning gets, you know, that, that two goal lead, they don't need any more. They they have an attitude that we don't need any more guys. We just need to do what we do and close out games. We had uh, Ian Cole on mm-hmm. in our intermission, and he's with the team for the first year. And, and he even stated this team has a very mature defensive attitude when it comes to closing out games, and that's the way I have to do He said they're going into the third, and that's exactly what they, what they do. They can close you out. That's how they've won all these games in the regular season. That's how they win in the playoffs. They get a jump on you, and with their top you know, players, 
uh, usually providing the goals. Not last night was not a case. They had Belmar and uh, who got the other goal? Uh, Nick Paul, you know, gave him the two-goal hey, lead. Paul Hedman, well, yeah. Yeah, well, Hedman's was an empty netter, but you, what I'm saying is they get the goals and then they go into closeout shutdown mode. A very frustrating uh, way to play. And then when there is a breakdown or two, you know, you got Andre Vasilevsky in, in between that. So that's how they do it. They, that's how they did it yesterday, and that's how they do it when they're playing well. Let, let me ask you about Stamkos and 500 here. So, you know, uh, back in your old neck of the woods is where I was yesterday, Mount Joy Arena in Markham, and you walk in, you will go upstairs, and there's a big picture of Stamkos. You know, Stamkos played for the Markham Waxers, so can you, et cetera. And, you know, thinking about him being, you know, one goal shy of, of 500, we know what that'll mean to him. What would 500 for Stamkos mean to the organization? Well, it's he got 1,000 points earlier this season. And these are major, major marks. I mean, there's a statue of Dave Andrzejczyk outside Emily Arena for winning one cup. And, and that was at the end of his career. And Andrzejczyk obviously is a Hall of Famer, still a big part of the organization itself. But, you know, imagine the size of the statue of Stamkos is going to be out there. And, and they've had some great players <laughs> and a Hall of Famer, Martin St. Louis, Vincent LeCavalier, you go on down the list. There's been Dan Boyle was a very good player there. And they've, they've got some history. But atop of it all is Steven Stamkos. And he is going to get to a, a very elite mark. He'll only be the 47th player to get to 500 goals. And this is one of my favorite stats about it. He will be just the 19th player to get 500 goals in less than 1,000 games. And do yourself a favor, Google that list. It is a who's who of goal scorers over the years. 19 guys. Yeah. Uh, so that is elite. And what will that mean? That That's just the Lightning are a hockey town. They are a dynasty. They've already solidified their their reputation as a true hockey championship destination and franchise. But this is just another big feather in the cap. And 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 Stephen will say it's it's basically for the Lightning, you know, to enjoy uh, because he's like that. He doesn't like talking about his own personal numbers. He's being asked about it constantly. And quite frankly, it's kind of on his mind mm-hmm. because it's, you know everybody's trying to force feed it when there's an empty net and. In St. Louis, Jeff, on Saturday night, it, we were actually almost yep. chuck, chuckling myself and Brian Englum on the air. He missed two empty nets. Like, it's been a long – he's never had to work so hard for this last goal in his entire career of, goal, <laughs> of scoring goals. Here it is. He got 497 uh, against uh, Seattle on December 14th. He has two goals in 14 games since. He's got 48 shots on that, tied for most on the team. There's been saves, there's been goalposts, there's been missed chances, there's been, it's just, there's going to be a big sigh of relief from Stamkos when he gets there, and it, it will be a special moment indeed. Might come tomorrow in Vancouver. What would be the perfect scenario? What would be the perfect shot? Like, you know, listen, we know you don't want the, you know, the significant goal like 500 to be on an empty netter. Uh, what, would, what would the Stamkos 500th, what would the, the perfect goal be for you, Dave? No, oh, I, I, as as a play-by-play man, I do not want it to be some kind of weird, weird goal mouse scramble where it goes off three guys and he tips it at the end. <laughs> I don't see it clearly, so I don't want that. That's for sure. Um, I mean, obviously, he's known for that patented one-timer from the left circle. That's how he yeah. scored four ninety-nine. To be honest, that was it was a patented Steven Stamkos goal. That has been the shot that he has been working on and cultivating since he was a kid in Markham, taking shooting classes. Yeah. Uh, you know, his, his dad his dad spent a lot of money uh, developing that shot. And I saw that shot um, 
Uh, you know, you mentioned Mount Joy Arena and at Centennial Arena. I saw that shot when he was a kid playing for the Markham Wax. Yep. When, when Steven was a big deal and people would go out and watch Paul Titanic's Markham Midget A, uh, minor midget um, AAA Waxes yep. play. He had that shot from that exact same spot. I remember it vividly. So that would be ultimately the mm-hmm. you know the poster that uh, would be would be the picture in the, uh, on the on the website the next day. Michael Delzato on that team. Uh, Cam Gauntz would have been on that team. Cody Hodgson. Am I running out of yeah. names here, Dave? All those guys on that team on that. Uh, that yeah, Martin no, those guys were all there. Paul those Titanic guys were all there. Yeah, Paul Titanic, who was, uh, uh, you know, he went to high school there, played a little bit of high school hockey before his dad pulled him out of that. So he's, uh, I know there's a lot of people in that area that are cheering for him as well. I get a lot of texts from, from uh, back in Markham, you oh, know, yeah. as he gets closer. So there's a lot. Of, he's just a very good person, and you can see why he's got so much support in the community that he lives in and the community where he's from. Uh, he's, been, uh, he's been a model citizen, a model captain for a long time. He uh, goes about his business in a very professional way. He and Hedman set the standard for this this decade-long run that they've had in Tampa Bay uh, with the Lightning. And uh, so he deserves every bit of the credit that he's going to get as a 1,000-point man and a 500-goal guy and a two-time Stanley Cup champion. Not too shabby and perhaps more on the horizon as well. Cups, I mean. Um, you know, this is an interesting squad. You know, there's the old saying, you know, if you're not hungry, you won't eat. And after you've had a couple of big meals, and Tampa's had a couple of them, and then a, a run to the Stanley Cup final against Colorado, where they could have enjoyed another one, how does this team still keep that fire? Like, how do they keep it? I know, I mean, it's, it's the Rocky story, right? Like, it's harder to, to stay on top than to get on top. How do they still find it? You know, I, I mean, every year, whether it's, you know, this year it's say goodbye to Andre Palat, say goodbye to, to Ryan McDonough, etc. But they still have that same fire, it seems. And I've always said it's the fool that bets against the Tampa Bay Lightning. How do they keep it, Dave? How do they keep that? Yeah, I get asked this a lot, uh, and now that I've been around it now that in my third season covering the team and, and being around it, um, you know, behind the ropes, so to speak, I'm going to trot out a couple of cliches here, but they're all true uh, when I talk about the standard okay. and the culture and the, the just dislike for losing uh, and the recognition that their window is still open. They don't take it for granted. They truly, as a group, don't take it for granted. You know, I've been on your show before, and I've said it begins, the, the, the standard begins with Victor Hedman and Steven Stankos, two guys who are not big, huge, rah-rah guys. I'm sure Stankos says a, a few things in the room behind closed doors, no doubt. I don't think yep. Victor Hedman says much at all because that's how he is. He's kind of a stoic, silent leader, but, but do not underestimate his competitiveness and his fire. Uh, he, is, uh, he is all of that. And then it trickles down from there. And when they lose significant pieces like the ones that you mentioned, both of whom were huge pieces, uh, Andre Plot, do not uh, underestimate how big he was for uh, his long tenure here as a member of the Lightning. He'll go down as one of the best bolts ever. Uh, you know, a guy was drafted in the seventh round in his second year of eligibility. Uh, anyway, so they lose him. <clears throat> and they bring in other guys that, uh, in this case, being, say, Nick Paul and Brandon Hagel and Ian Cole, uh, Cole, obviously a two-time cup winner himself and a veteran who's been around the block a bit. But the other two guys, they, it, it's almost as though there's this acceptance uh, within the organization from the players from, well, if these guys are coming in, that they've been fully vetted in terms of fitting our room and fitting what we have and meeting the standards that we all have collectively. They, there's no, so they are 
accepted and embraced immediately as important pieces and made to feel important. And how do they respond? Well, Nick Paul's already tied his career high in goals this season, and uh, Brandon Hagel scored his 17th goal last uh, last night in Seattle, and he's well on his way to eclipsing his 25 goals that he scored last season. They feel a part of it. They are brought into this special group, and they elevate their roles and and. It's just kind of it's a it's a circle of life, if you will, uh, bringing in new pieces because the players <laughs> trust the guy in charge. They trust Cooper. They trust Breezebaugh. Uh, and and if not, if pieces don't fit, trust me, they will not be uh, in that room very long because that's that's just the way that this organization uh, operates. And I think there's still a move to be made. You know, prior to the deadline, I don't know, don't ask me how. <laughs> you know, just like everybody else, they're up against the cap, but. Uh, Julian has uh, has yeah. pulled rabbits out of hats before, and I think they want to address their depth up front. Maybe some somebody with a little bit more experience on the blue line, although Nick Perbix has been a real nice surprise to them. But uh, there's there's moves to be yeah. to be made before the trade deadline. I'm I'm certain of it. I, I think a lot of us, and, and Elliot was mentioning this Saturday on Hockey Day, I think a lot of us wonder about uh, about a return of Luke Shen. Uh, to Tampa, that that would make a lot of sense. I know there's going to be a lot of a lot of teams that are that are looking at the Vancouver Canucks uh, blue liner, and Tampa faces off against Vancouver tomorrow. I think he's going to be in high demand, and I, I just wonder, like a lot of us, Dave, if if Tampa is going to be at the front of the line to, to try to resecure the services of Luke Shen. Well, he was very well. He's been very popular wherever he's played. He's a great person, and uh, you know, real hardworking veteran guy who's kind of remodeled his career from. You know, being a, a guy who was fifth overall pick and all his high expectations to just kind of rounding out his game to be what he is today, which is a steady Eddie, very physical uh, blue liner with, who's a great teammate that'll drop the gloves and take care of things when they need to be taken care of. And he's been here for two cups. They know who he is. They, they, he was very popular here. So that wouldn't be a surprise at all. Real interesting career for Luke Shen. Uh, listen, uh, tomorrow against the Vancouver Canucks, uh, enjoy it. Uh, congratulations uh, to Tampa for raining on the parade. Uh, raining in <laughs> Seattle, I know a shock. Raining on the parade of the Kraken, uh, ending their winning streak, and now it's four in a row for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, Dave, thanks as always for stopping by. You're the best. Uh, and Mountjoy misses you, and uh, Markham Centennial uh, misses you, and you're still well, well thought of in your old Waxer area. No, the Mark of Men's League. I had many a good night with all my buddies back there. So hello to all those guys. <laughs> and I think the Lightning brought the rain with them to Vancouver. So shockingly, it's uh, pouring rain here all day. So uh, we'll see if I can't get up for a little walk. But thanks, as always, for having me on. I appreciate it, Jeff. You're the best, Dave. Dave Randorf, play-by-play voice of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, the Lightning have now won four in a row. And by, and by the way, as, as much as we talk about Connor McDavid, and listen, he's wrapped up the Hart Trophy. We all know that. 83 points. Uh, next in line, Leon Dreisaitl at 68. You know, I don't think we've spent enough time or have given any concert at all to talk about how good a season Nikita Kucherov is having right now at 62 points or how great a season Andre Vasilevsky is is having with a save percentage in around 918, 919. Um, I think just a lot of this is just wash, rinse, repeat. These are things that now we just expect uh, of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, we'll see. I mean, this is a team that I think we all know is going to face off against the Toronto Maple Leafs in the first round. I think that probably scares Toronto more than it does Tampa. Um, given the history and given how this team tends to play in the playoffs. Uh, but we shall see. I think that both teams aren't aren't going to necessarily make moves with each other in mind, at least not front of mind. But if you're the Maple Leafs, I think you're looking at the first round and saying, 
We can't just make moves based on winning one series, but we're facing off against Tampa, and we know we need to win one series or there's going to be serious consequences. Eyes on Tampa if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs heading into the trade deadline. Thanks to Dave Randor for stopping by. Thanks to Brian Lawton from the NHL Network, uh, NHL Network uh, analyst there. Uh, Phil Bublitz, thanks so much for sending in the Ralph Backstrom Random Player of the Day to have yours. Uh, JM Show at Sportsnet.ca. Thanks to Bill Guerin, Minnesota Wild General Manager, and Elliot Friedman for kicking it off as always. Only one game on the network this evening, Sportsnet Ontario. Maple Leafs, Florida Panthers. We're back tomorrow on the Merrick Show. Discuss all of it. No shortage of hockey stuff here. Talk to you tomorrow.